This is never not goofy for me. This. Do you want me to rub your back? Jesus, not again. <laughs> My wife is so suspicious after the last time. <laughs> hey folks, this is Dr. C and welcome to my office hours. Uh, I'm excited to talk to y'all today with my good friend, colleague, and uh, co-traumatized person from grad school, I suppose. <laughs> uh, Dr. Julia Largent uh, is joining us today. Uh, so Julia, why don't you say hi to the folks at home? Hi everyone, it's so good to be here. So uh, Julia, you and I have known each other for a few years and actually uh, for those who've been listening to other episodes of the podcast, you know, you're part of the same uh, group of folks that hung around with like Shanna uh, who's mm-hmm. on here as well and, and some other folks. And actually you and Shanna have some overlap a little bit in terms of research we areas. We do, yeah. Uh, yeah, she and I were I think two years apart in grad school. So you guys were, I think Gabe, you were kind of in between I was All in between. three cohorts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and so I was super excited when Shanna came because I was like, ooh, another fan studies person who knew a lot more than I do about fan studies. And I still, she still knows more than I do about it. Um, but she's been around it more and just kind of, um, I stumbled upon fan studies where she knew it was a field before I did. So she's mm-hmm. a little bit more well-read, but she's a fantastic person and helped me with my dissertation. So thank you, Shanna. Yeah. Uh, and so I've joked before that fan studies always seems to me a bit like a snake eating its own tail. Um, because like we, by virtue of being in academia, we're all fans of a given thing. And so it's, I don't know, it's always just from, seemed a little peculiar to me. But I think what's been fascinating about it that I've learned from talking to you and from talking to Shanna is that uh, how it people incorporate these texts into their lives in a way that sort of lives and breathes. Uh, and so to sort of springboard a little bit and get into that, um, I want to talk a little bit about what you were working on in grad school in your dissertation because, uh, one, there's a couple good stories out of it, like your interactions with Reddit, which I think are worth sharing with people, <laughs> and and issues of like qualitative methodologies, and also just because like because you you study largely nonfiction sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, right? that's where I live. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So my world, um, I have two research worlds that I focus on. One is documentary, and the other one is fandom. And so when we were looking at what I wanted to do for my dissertation, you know, that really big thing at the end of the degree, um, my advisor and I were trying to find a way that to bridge the two worlds. Um, and after, because fan studies primarily focuses in on media fandom, there's a world of um, like reality TV as well as sports TV, um, but nonfiction, those documentaries really doesn't come into play a whole lot within fan studies. And I was really interested as to why. You know, do we just not care about these fans? Do we not see them as worthy to study? Do we not think that they operate the same way? And so we developed a study to kind of uh, look through all of that and look through and look at documentary fans, uh, because I've always identified as one. I love documentaries. I watch them in my free time. I can give you a mini lecture on documentary pretty much at any point in time, just like on a dime. Um, and so I went through and, and found a couple case studies that I wanted to focus on, and um, which were Serial Season 1 with Adnan Zayed. So I did a podcast. I had a streaming one with Adrian Daisy, um, which is about sexual uh, harassment and bullying and sexual assault. It came out on Netflix that fall when I was starting my, my dissertation, and so I did live coding with it. Um, and then the last one was The Choice 2016, uh, which Frontline does, it's PBS Frontline. They do this every four years for the two main party candidates in the US. They've been doing it since the like 1980s. Um, and it just, it looks at both candidates um, as people, not as politicians. And so it gives some of that background information, if you will. Um, and so I looked at those three and I, um, 
coded tweets, and this is where Shanna came in. She was my fellow coder. Um, she read way too many tweets along with me um, and coded for emotion and coded for the theme of the tweet um, and looking at how they interacted with filmmakers or they interacting with other fans. Do they call themselves fans? Um, and I also interviewed a handful of uh, filmmakers who aren't necessarily associated with any of those three films, um, but one of them uh, is Jeannie Finley, who directed the Game of Thrones HBO doc um, at the end of the series. It was kind of a cool thing. I was like, hey, I've met her. Um, and it was like a low-key fame moment. Um, and then Hansi Oppenheimer, who does some stuff on, on Squee and fangirling and pop culture in general. And then uh, Eric Murphy, who directed a, a documentary called Trafficant about the congressman of uh, Youngstown, Ohio, who was very bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also interviewed a couple of people, couple of people from Frontline uh, who are in charge of social media. Uh, so they're talking to their audience and how um, how they engage with their audience and all of that. And so all of that put together. Um, also had a survey for uh, serial fans, which is where Reddit came in, um, which came mentioned at the beginning. I was just telling a, a colleague about this yesterday because we were talking about um, the internet and how it, it can be awful and wonderful all at the same time. And um, I had a couple funny, it was just an open-ended response, you know, standard survey responses. And then um, some open-ended questions toward the end. And I posted it on a bunch of different serial fan reddits uh, to try and get as big of a sample as I could. And a couple people, I had one person rickroll me in the open-ended credits or questions, and then which was a really fun conversation to have to explain to people who didn't know what rickrolling was because they were like, <laughs> why is this a thing? Um, and then the other one, I believe it was um, instead of rickrolling, it was porn titles. Um, where they just op- use that in all of the um, open-ended questions. So obviously those two got thrown out, but it was kind of I, I kind of laughed really hard at the Rick Rolling aspect because it was just kind of a clever way to to screw up someone's survey. But <laughs> yeah. um, I laughed. Yeah, I remember you telling me about that and, and going, you know, because I think we were like working in a Starbucks or something like that. Yeah, One of like probably. Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday night study groups where it was like someone Rick Rolled me in my responses. <laughs> Leap it's a Reddit. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's great for like, you know, uh, population aggregation, right? You can get people who are really interested in a particular thing, but also it's weirdos on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I did get some great responses from Reddit. Um, but I also, and I feel like if you're going to use a survey to the open internet, you're just going to have to brace yourself for random things of that nature and just. Yeah. You know, having those open-ended questions are probably a good thing because then it can help weed out the people who just went through and clicked buttons. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it was it was funny, and it led to really funny conversations with my dissertation chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, old Tom, yeah. <laughs> so on that note of uh, engaging with people and, and, you know, these sort of things, especially with, like, the, the choice, right, and the HBO special and, and um, because the 2016 election was – I mean, every election, every election is contentious of some sort, right? But that one, that one in particular being what it was um, – we also watched the election at your house, I remember. We did, and I think you brought a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> I did. I did. Because I, I yeah. knew which way the wind was blowing. Yeah, um, and, and, to, and to my own credit, I did not want to set out to be a masochist and make myself code a bunch of tweets about Trump. I actually picked it before the election uh, happened and when mm-hmm. we were still optimistic of a different direction. Yeah. And um, looking back, I kind of wish I'd chosen a different film, but the front line specifically was was 
filling mm-hmm. the hole of a broadcast documentary. And yeah. so it was it was still interesting, but it was also kind of depressing coding post-election before the inauguration. Sure. So how did you find that people were interacting with these documentaries? Because, or, or let's back up for a second, because I'm not sure if we stated this clearly. What was the goal in terms of understanding how people related? Yeah, I was really interested in looking at how... Uh, fans were interacting with each other and or with the director itself. And so one thing that Twitter is known for, and as new social media are popping up, um, is the idea that you can talk directly with the content creator, whether that's a celebrity or a filmmaker or whoever it is. Um, there's that middle wall kind of missing now. You know, you used to have to write a fan letter and hope that it got through the screening process and maybe read by the person that you're sending it to. Um, and understanding that Twitter is still not completely made by um, the celebrities, but there's still a, a, you know, the idea that they're there behind the Twitter. Um, and so I was looking to see if people were interacting with filmmakers the way that we might interact with celebrities. Um, and for me, for for these three films or three documentaries, it really depended on which uh, documentary it was. Um, serial... Um, obviously uh, was the biggest of the three that I used um, as the case study. And it was also um, the oldest one. And so I actually had to go back and manually copy and paste code or tweets to code. And I broke my uh, computer trackpad doing that one one year. That was fun. Um, Dissertation ruins everything, man. Um, And um, specifically Serial, they had a, a closer knit connection with the director. And there could be a couple of things for that. Um, if you're not familiar with Serial, it's an, a spinoff of This American Life. Um, and the season one is in 2014. And the even though season one focuses in on uh, a, a murder, like it's a true crime kind of whodunit um, conviction uh, season, the term serial is not in relation to like a serial killer. It's actually into the idea that you have to listen serially um, into each episode and they build upon each other, which a lot of podcasts don't necessarily do. You can, you know, tune into one episode and not the next. And um, and so it was kind of a different type of storytelling for podcasts. Um, but it, it's uh, directed and hosted by Sarah Koenig. And so Koenig being the voice that everyone heard as well as the director of it, Um, made it, I think, easier for the fans to know who they were talking to. Um, And so there were a ton of interactions with Sarah, um, calling her Sarah, not even just Koenig or, um, you know, having that first name basis with someone they don't know uh, because there was that intimate relationship, you know, podcasting. Just hearing an audio is a very different relationship than um, seeing them on TV. You kind of have a more intimate relationship with just the voice. Um, And so as you're... Uh, tweeting about them, you're going to be f- tweeting at, at at Sarah Koenig, whether it's tagging uh, Sarah, tagging Serial, or just kind of mentioning it and mentioning her in general. The other two films well, didn't necessarily so, have real that. Real quick, are you yeah. are you saying that like because of the storytelling format, like people necessarily develop a relationship with the with the director because it is kind of told from the director's perspective? I think it was the fact that she was hosting. I think if it, if it was a different person actually telling the story, it the the fans would have tweeted at that person. Got it. Um, so I think it just because it's the same person in this case, um, 
they were tweeting at the host, which happened to be the director. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And so by virtue of being the director, but also sort of the face of the podcast, because she's the one that's in the ear so often of the of the listener. And yeah, I, I can mm. see how that would create a sort of, um, you know, sort of parasocial relationship. The folks might feel the comfort of, you know, saying, hi, Sarah, you know, that kind of thing. Um, right, oh, right. It just occurred to me, we should probably mention Barry's a documentarian. He huh. <laughs> oh. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> I don't make You're them. Good. I just watch them and study them. <laughs> I I make them. You know stuff about them. <laughs> you know, well, you know, you know things, things too. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. That's what it says on Barry's business card. Actually, it says, "Hi, I'm yeah. Barry. I know things too." I know. I know uh, some things too. I know some. <laughs> <laughs> on my Twitter profile for a while, it said I push buttons and things happen because that's yeah. how I fix the printer every time I can't get it to work. I just start pushing. Oh, that's buttons. just printers. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> that way. Don't worry. <laughs> So yeah. So what's interesting about cereal, and I, I remember I was actually a, a late comer to that. I learned about yes, it from some I. O- yeah. yeah. I learned about it from uh, some other friends of ours, uh, Erica and Andy. Same as um, I, probably. Yeah. And there was this feeling of sort of like I was left out because I didn't know mm-hmm. about it that made me want to engage. And I can see how then if you are if you weren't an early adopter of the series, then getting involved and like, okay, well other people are talking about it. I feel like I need to, you know, get involved and so you do. And then you had this opportunity, like you say, with Twitter, because Twitter really does uh, reduce a lot of the distance, right? Between it does. creators yeah. and or the at audience. At least that's the idea in the Yeah the viewpoint of most of the world is that it, it release or it shortens that span between fan and person. Right. Like I, I can't imagine Frank Sinatra having a Twitter uh, <laughs> and people being able to tweet at, at old blue eyes or something like that. I mean, right. Um, and I'm sure that wouldn't be great for his image um, or would not have been. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so there is a sort of communal, identity that sort of gets around these things and it's obviously not just that but it, it was like Game of Thrones it was uh, Harry Potter when it was huge and still is for some people it was any sort of um, piece of uh, or any sort of text that takes up so much of the, the zeitgeist in the modern day um, but what do you think it is about something like Serial or The Choice or any of these other you know um, documentary-esque or documentary uh, type type uh pieces of media that makes folks feel so attached to them because that's with, a great question because i was gonna say um, well, like with with fantasy with science fiction we can get lost in the what if right and the potential and the escapism that kind of thing but like y- you this stuff exists in time and space right and so people get so involved in it and it's it's almost always a heavy subject matter like you said with serial it was about a murder conviction it was about the death of a woman and yeah. the corresponding murder conviction that's heavy as hell it <laughs> is and every right? and people were looking forward to every thursday for the new episode to drop and mm-hmm. it was an snl and it, it was it was a very if you weren't aware of it at the time it's because you weren't consuming the right media to or the popular media mm-hmm. to be told about serial mm-hmm and the same thing with like um, uh, with like the choice and the election and all that kind of stuff because and I, I can kind of get that because it was such a polarizing election right I mean the elections prior you think like John McCain and Barack Obama okay that was polarizing but at the end of the day it wasn't I don't think as much of a circus as no no this one turned well out McCain didn't use social media so therefore it's it true it's a little bit different. <laughs> 
It's true. And while there are a lot of, you know, really good critiques of McCain, the man had some tact. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, I I still think there's a level of escapism that happens with documentaries, uh, whether we want to admit it or not. Um, you're right. Most documentaries or a lot of documentaries have a very heavy topic. Audrey and Daisy is about sexual harassment and sexual assault and sexual bullying. And that's not a fun topic to watch. Um, for some people, those documentaries, such as Audrey and Daisy, where it's such a heavy topic, is um, both educational and also comforting uh, for those who might be of, um, who have had something happen to them kind of the sentiment of I'm not alone or how did someone else handle it? Um, and so there's that level of connection with it. Um, the choice I think is a, is a unique one only because it's a political, um, you know, the people watching the choice are not going to be the same people probably listening to serial, although I am one of those cross groups um, because it's, they're two very different things, politics. And it's a one-off documentary. It happens every four years, but it's a different group of people every four years. Um, it has been the same director the last handful, at least. Um, and and so that's going to be a different audience than, say, like your standard uh, Netflix documentary. You know, the I forget one now. I can't come up with one off the top of my head. Um, I think those are very different audiences. Um, but for a lot of people, especially the true crime aspect, there's still that escapism. I think there's also an idea that that's not my life, so my life is better. Um, which we a lot of us have that same concept with, you know, fantasy or or something else, especially if it's like a dystopian aspect of my life is okay because it is not that. And I think um, sure. documentaries can still have that that place where we don't um, or we we don't have that life, and so we're happy with the life we have because of all of the sad and, and destructive and depressing things that are often <laughs> focused on in documentaries. Um, they do exist, happy ones do exist. Um, sure. And in that case, I think it's a happy one that we just, we like happy stories. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's uh, you know, uh, that idea of contrasting one's life to, uh, you know, what is objectively horrible is why I read the road whenever I need to pick me up. Um, <laughs> That's such a depressing book. Uh, <laughs> if you don't know what book I'm talking about, it's a dystopian uh, novel written by Cormac McCarthy. And um, don't read it unless you have some mental health despair. Good God, that's a heavy thing. <laughs> anyway, but no, I, but I get what you mean. Like, oh, well, you know, that's thank God it's not me. Or, or some people, I think one, I wonder if they watch them to say to critique and maybe think about what would they do in those situations, which is its own kind of fantasy, right? Right, um, right. I also find that sometimes the, I, I find, uh, this is anecdotal, but like oftentimes I find audience members interested in a particular topic either because it, um, like there, there is kind of a, a nice rush that comes from critiquing a system that's, or an establishment of some sort, right? Like we really enjoy seeing a well-crafted argument against something that we also find bad or also feeling like we learned something that other people might not know about, right? Like yeah, we've, yeah. we've gotten something revealed to us about society or about the world we live in that, oh, now I'm in the know. And I feel like yeah. there is a level of like hipsterness with it. Of, yeah, totally. Of like, I know the information before you did. And I've, I've fallen into the own trap of I don't watch a couple of films because I'm like, but I knew that before that film ever existed. And one of them is Blackfish. I still oh, have yeah. never watched Blackfish. It's because I did 
didn't need for I don't feel like I had need to watch a documentary about SeaWorld to know that SeaWorld did awful things to orcas. And yeah. so there's a level of hipsterness of I'm the first one to watch this in my friend group. And there's a level of hipsterness of I know about it. Therefore, I don't need to watch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. totally. Yeah, yeah. I I have I've never seen Blackfish, although it was very popular for a long time. It was time. super popular. Yeah. Oh, you can't you can't read a, a yeah. news article about SeaWorld now without Blackfish without mentioning it. Yeah, still being mentioned. And then mm-hmm. and then there was yeah. a new one I think last spring, like Seaspiracy or something. Um, and mm-hmm. it was it was kind of hitting hard again, like Blackfish. And um, there were a lot of scientists who came out against it, saying that it was wrong. And so mm-hmm. you know, with any of these really hard hitting, popular documentaries, you you do have to consider the aspect of who who made it, what is their bias, what is the point of mm-hmm. making it. Like there's still an argument to be made with documentaries. They're not completely 100% always telling the whole truth and all sides of the story. There's still mm-hmm. an angle that is frequently told. But that, it, mm-hmm. isn't that like one of the features of the documentary though is that there is an assumption at least because of the genre that it is true. And so Yeah. Yeah, people which makes people with an expectation, whether it's yeah, yeah, but then or it, not. but then you have issues where um, D'Souza makes all of these, mm-hmm. you know, really conspiracy esque documentaries, and because it's labeled as a doc, people think it's one hundred percent factual, and that's right, not always right. the case. Right. So Bannon even though it is the same thing, yeah, yeah, it's that nonfiction aspect um, of documentary, but you do have to be mm-hmm. careful that just because it's labeled as a doc doesn't mean it's 100% true, and you do have to right. still do your due mm-hmm. diligence to make sure the director is correct, you know? Right, right. Yeah. I, I, for one, have never thought twice about anything that Ken Burns has told me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I mean, it, it's, there's just, like, cultural signifiers now that you know, are, are embedded in the documentary as being signifiers of authenticity, signifiers of truth, right? And so if we see a shaky camera that like is following someone in the moment, it must be real, it must be true, or we must be seeing all of the truth that's mm-hmm. going on because why would they choose such cruddy aesthetics? Right, right. Why would right. They, uh, sure. if, if it wasn't spontaneous and in the moment, you know? Uh, Julia, didn't you use Nanook of the North in one of your classes? Oh, yeah, I use PG? it a lot. Yeah. 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 And yeah what, Nanook, why, are, why is that significant? So Nanook because it's 100% consi- true all the way through. Like, uh, it's the only real document. <laughs> Barry, hush, I asked the guests. <laughs> no, Barry's 100% true. No, or right, I'm kidding. Um, Nanook <laughs> is considered the first documentary. Um, it was retroactively deemed the first doc. Um, so it wasn't until uh, he. Uh, Flaherty created Moana, I believe, that John Grierson uh, used the term documentary to explain Nanook of the North. And so if you don't know of Nanook, um, it's 1924, 1922. I can never remember what year it is. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those two, because I think Moana is 1926 or 28. It's all in the 20s. Um, <laughs> and so Nanook, the joke that Barry made, Nanook is completely fictional. Um, it focuses on a a like a nuclear family in the very cold Arctic, um, the Eskimo aspect. Um, they're, they're Eskimos and they're, you're chronicling their life. So it's your, your standard reality TV before reality TV. Um, there were a lot of issues with it. It was actually a second shot of the film because the first film uh, burned. Um, yay cigarettes in editing base. Um, and so um, 
the family that is featured is not even a family. Um, I can't remember if any of them are related, but most of them are just actors. To They were hired to become a family. Yeah, um, it's an assembled group of people that yeah, we call a family yeah. on film. Yeah, and so it is the earliest documentary that is deemed a documentary, but it is also the earliest case of reenactment in documentary. And it was in, yeah. it was designed in, or intended to be a representation of um, uh, indigenous life, right? Yes, in, yes. In Alaska, yes. was it? I think so. It's somewhere cold. Yeah, yeah. it ends yeah. up being Flaherty's uh, romanticized idea of what that would be, right? Yeah, yeah. And so there's a there's a point where um, like his crew also went through awful things. They almost froze to death, and um, you know we have this fan, like this great film out of it at the end, but or great, I guess I don't know if it's actually great, but we have this historic film at the end, and so then he was asked to go around and do a similar film in. Moana, not Disney, but um, in this, I think it's in Samoa. Um, yeah, I remember I, right. I, I, the every time you said Moana up until this point, I really <laughs> thought you were. It was some kind of connection to the Disney. Yeah, ever, ever since the, Moana the Disney is a film documentary, came out. you know that, right? Yeah, <laughs> the same way that Coco is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> ever ever since Disney released Moana, it's really hard to find on Google Images like still shots of. Flaherty's documentary because you like have to put in like very specific Moana plus Flaherty plus documentary and not just Moana. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but that one, that one did not hit as hard because life in a very hot tropic is not as exciting as life in a very cold Arctic. Sure. Sure. <laughs> when the air is not actively trying to kill you, right. it seems perhaps right. less dramatic. Sure, but I think Moana is fascinating. Um, they have retro retroactively colorized it as well as added sound to it. And so Nanook mm. is kind of what I think of a silent documentary where it has like, you know, the piano keyboard uh, mm. soundtrack with it. And it flashes up like little slide title things. Captions, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is why yeah. I don't make documentaries. <laughs> we need them things. It's the letters. It's on the screen. What you call them? <laughs> Captions. Yeah. yeah. So Na Nanook is very much the, the considered the first doc. So, and this actually gets to a, a really interesting point. So, when um, my students will ask me from time to time in like public speaking classes uh, whether or not they're allowed to use documentaries as citations, and I tell them no. I, I get the same question. And yeah. and and what I tell them is you can't, but. Any good documentary is going to have citations in it, which you should follow up on. So, for example, I love the documentary 13th. It's, it's mm -hmm. a good documentary. In large part, one of the things, or not in large part, but one of the fun things about that, because there's not much fun about that documentary, is getting Newt Gingrich to agree with the Clintons on anything, which I have to <laughs> wonder how much they like coerced him into that. Um, Anyway, uh, but they have a lot of good statistics and facts and stuff that you can follow up on, right? That you could then cite in a paper or something along right, those lines. Right, right, yeah. Right. So, and and this gets to the idea of uh, every documentary is subject to the uh, to the vision of the creator, right? So then, what is a healthy amount of skepticism to have for a documentary? Hmm. That's a good question. I. I go into every documentary and I get I get swept up in them the same way as every other person, even though I am well aware of biases that exist in filmmakers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think just being skeptical of any of the facts, especially if there's not any sort of citation or source on the screen. Um, like you said, a lot of those really good documentaries, well, if they have a fact or or, you know, statistics or something, there'll be that little 
um, mm-hmm. source of where it came from. If it doesn't have that, I would definitely be a bit more skeptical than if it does have that. Um, but mm-hmm. I think following up the same way you would with any anything else you read to try and see if it's accurate or not, Google it. Um, are is is the information correct? Is it other places? Is it incredible places? I feel sure. like fact-checking documentaries, like you should do the exact same way you fact-check other information. I think that's fair because at the end of the day, we do have to remember that the documentarian is trying to create a narrative. Right, and right. There's still a story to yeah. be told. You know, Frederick and, Wiseman sets up a camera on the corner and, and films hundreds of hours of film to mm-hmm. dwindle down to a two-hour feature. There's still an editing process that has to be done. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in that process, uh, because as with any narrative, there are inherently parts of reality that are collapsed and omitted and that kind of thing. So, yeah. So as we, uh, as we wrap up and conclude, um, I want to ask y'all your recommendations for good documentaries for anyone who's interested. Barry, let's start with you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> this is This gets so hard because it's like when someone's like, so what's your favorite song? I'm like, oh. No, my brain shuts down. And have I listened to music? What is music? I, I oh no. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, if we're talking about political documentaries, like we have been, um, get me Roger Stone on Netflix is a really fantastic and interesting way of following around a politically active character of some sort, especially because it's so. Um, they break down the the fourth wall so often that that Roger Stone is acknowledging the director throughout the film and their political opposition to each other throughout the film and the making of it and he acknowledges it and he kind of welcomes this person to who is politically opposed to him making this film about him oh yeah and it plays into his political philosophy really really well which he reveals throughout the film so that's that's a really fun one i really enjoy mm-hmm. every time i've watched it every time i see a picture of roger stone i feel like i need to take a shower um <laughs> yeah that, yeah that's that's a good way of describing the, roger man, stone. the man is gross <laughs> conceptually and physically it's just, just i don't know if you have a giant a giant tattoo of roger or richard nixon on your back and this what, uh, was it what was it what was it john oliver said it's simultaneously too big and too small at the same yeah, time yeah <laughs> It's like an awkward size, yeah. Yeah, I, I listened to a multi-part uh, uh, series on him. Um, it was on Behind the Bastards because uh, he was worthy of being called a bastard, and that just, just so gratuitously, aggressively mediocre and lucky, and thinking that in believing his own myth. Anyway, I'm sorry, but okay, give me Roger Stone. That's a good one. Um, I, you know, for my part, I think that the only documentary that I've ever really cared about in any sort of meaningful way, not not the only one, but like because I've seen a few, but one that sticks with me and maybe stick is a is a a bit much. Um, haunt is maybe a better word. Tickled. <laughs> oh no, my god, yeah, that's a good one. It's because it doesn't matter what the conceptual buy-in for that documentary is. It doesn't matter what you think you're getting. You're wrong. You're wrong. It's such, a, it's, it's such a roller coaster. Oh, it, my goodness. It is. And that, and that detour into uh, the fetish of tickling, which is not necessarily inherently germane to the story, but still really educational. Like, it it relates. But, like, in a way that's like, I don't know that you needed this, but I feel like I I don't think I'm better for knowing it, but I've, I am something for knowing it. Um, and then just the way that it ends. Yeah, it's Tickled is the name of the documentary. Um, watch it with the lights on. Is all I'm I saying. think it's on HBO, or at least it was at one point. <laughs> yeah, it was originally, yeah. 
Yeah, because another friend of ours in grad school, I think, came forward and like we were talking about it. I think we roped you into watching it yeah, with us yeah, too. Yeah, no, I was there. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen it a couple times since then. Yeah, on yeah. one of our one of the first dates I had with my fiance, we watched Tickled, and I texted Ben, and he's like, "Well, he's either leaving or sticking around. We'll see which way this goes." Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good date night movie. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good screener movie. That's a good, you know, how well how emotionally well adjusted is this person? I honestly can't think of a better way to promote this film than this discussion we just had. <laughs> um, it is uncomfortable to watch if you're at all ticklish. Um, but it's a fascinating and it's one of those where you think it start it starts off one place and ends in a completely different place. It takes a so, hard left turn and gives you about breaks your neck, yeah. And, and reading yeah. about the the film after after it was put out, it, it oh, yeah. adds to the whole thing. Yeah, well. yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty great. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I think mine would actually be Free Solo. Um, so I don't always agree with what wins best documentary at the Oscars, mm-hmm. um, but Free Solo won. I think it was 2018, um, and it is such a fascinating film. It's another one of those where it can be very anxious uh, worthy to watch. Um, it's about a climber who. Um, What's the mountain? I totally forgot what one it was. Um, I I don't <laughs> I, I haven't seen it actually. I have no idea. Ah! Okay, uh, so he <laughs> one of them mountains. One of them mountains that people climb and probably die on. Um, it's in it's in Yosemite, but I can't remember. Um, is it El Capitan? It might be El Capitan. Oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, Are there mountains in Yosemite? I have no idea. <laughs> Yosemite. Gabriel. Yosemite. <laughs> one one of those Mac OS mountains. Um, yes. <laughs> And so he he climbs it without rope. And so that's referring to as you free solo up. Sounds the dumb. Um, it's it's a <laughs> it's a very fascinating film from an ethics point. And so what's really cool um, as someone who loves ethics, I love talking about ethics, especially like documentary and media and journalism ethics. Um, one thing that's really cool throughout is the filmmakers who are also climbers and are friends of the main climber are talking about um, filming his climb as part of the documentary within the documentary. So it talks a lot about, you know, if he falls and I'm right there filming, what what am I going to do? Will I drop can, the camera and help? What like, can you do? Right. There's that part too. And so like I'm filming his death um, and or could be filming his death. And how do I handle that? Like what, what do I do? So I think it's a very fascinating, it's a National Geogra- Geographic film. Um, and so not only is it cool to see someone climb a giant mountain without any rope and terrifying, but it also has a very interesting conversation about documentary ethics inside the film. Just in my mind, just, just alone, just a shadowy figure and then pink mist and like well, I hope you get a good oh. shot of that that's oh my all, goodness that's all this <laughs> like a little little slide slide whistle <laughs> it's like when you see those people in like the full body glider suits right and like you know you would never want this to happen obviously you don't want this to happen but <laughs> god wouldn't it be funny if it was if they just <laughs> we don't want this to happen if they just but... collided and it'd be like if a pigeon got hit with a baseball like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I took this in a wrong, in a very um, For people who can't see, which is everyone listening right now, uh, Gabriel is, Dr. C is crying at the moment. 
He's oh in God, tears. I shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm just add it Ooh, to. Oh, this God. might be an after hours episode. I don't know. <laughs> 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 Who right. would have known a documentary episode would go that dark? Yeah. yeah. All right. This All right. Guy. So on a lighter note, uh, on a lighter the, note, the um, National Geographic topic or doc topic uh, reminded me of the film Jane, which is another National Geographic one. Um, Nat Geo had uh, hours and hours and hours of um, 16 millimeter film of uh, Jane Goodall uh, doing her research and everything that just in an archive and they. Uh, the story goes, they came across it and we're like, oh, shoot, we need to do something with this. And so <laughs> oh, by the way, we have it, this. Yeah, whoops. <laughs> and <laughs> we're about 30 years late on this. And uh, they they hired a director and put it together. And it is fantastically, uh, I mean, it's just a, it's, I'm not one who is going to, like, if I'm at a film festival and I see, oh, there's a Jane Goodall document, I'm not seeing that film. Like, that's, I'm not going to, like, walk into that theater and sit down and watch it. It just doesn't seem like my kind of film. It, this is a fantastic film. Good um, to know. I've not seen it. Yeah, it's on Hulu right now, I believe. Um, and the interview is interesting because the director, I can't remember his name, the director uh, specifically filmed the 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 interview in on a soundstage that was built to look like some sort of a, a you know like her office out in um, uh, the Gamby and um, they light it in a way with, that looks like it's natural light and the interview takes place they film the interview like it's a narrative film and so it takes place over the course of a day and so as the film progresses you see um, it gets later and later in the hmm. day and then it's nighttime and then she's lit by candlelight and and so on and it, it follows the theme of the the film as well so it's it's as if they recorded this all throughout uh, the day and then into the night and then into the next day and it, it follows the narrative arc really nicely. So it's it's a neat blend of like narrative filmmaking techniques with mm -hmm. uh, nonfiction. Cool. Cool, I'll have to check it out. Yeah. All right then, so on that note, why don't we uh, call this <laughs> to an end. Uh, so uh, Dr. Julia Largent, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, primarily on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Julia Largent, just my first last name. And so that's where I live. Cool. So tweet at Julia. <laughs> I'm waiting for one of these times someone's going to say their actual address. <laughs> where can, where can I live in Kansas. <laughs> that's not true. There's no one in Kansas. Um, Here's my address. Come find me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we can fight over opinions about documentaries. Um, anyway, so, all right. And uh, obviously, you know, folks can find me uh, on Twitter as well as Instagram at GACruz underscore PhD and on TikTok at Dr. Dot underscore C. Uh, and you can find me at ThornburgMedia.com. All right. Very good. No one's taken me up on that yet, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm waiting right there. One of these days. <laughs> One of these days. All right. So uh, thanks, folks, for dropping by the office hours. Uh, we'll hope to see you next week. Yep. Yeah.